Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. It all began in America with a little-known bank. A major development in the banking world, the FDIC just reported that California regulators shut down Silicon Valley Bank. But when America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. And pretty soon, the failure of a couple of small American banks had triggered fear and turmoil across the global banking sector. Now, shares in Credit Suisse, one of the world's most important systemic banks, have slumped more than 9% overnight in the aftermath of the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. Tonight, an historic deal brokered by the Swiss government. Banking giant UBS agreeing to buy rival bank Credit Suisse for $3.2 billion. A sharp decline in the shares of Germany's Deutsche Bank have renewed concerns for the world's major financial institution. With the market still jittery, for many in the world of finance, it's brought back memories from 15 years ago. The moment that nobody wants to repeat. The global financial crisis of 2008. Lehman Brothers is going bankrupt. And financial markets from Asia to Europe are doing their utmost to prevent Monday from turning from dark to black. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. They will talk about this for generations to come. People are still talking about the crisis of 2008. But a generation on, have the lessons that were learnt back then already been forgotten? Back in 2008, we were told that some banks were just too big to fail. But will governments still want to keep stepping in to bail them out when things go wrong? How much are we willing to tell parts of the financial system that will always be there for them, even if they've made bad decisions and risky decisions? You're 
You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is it time for a banking rethink? I'm Mehreen Khan, the economics editor at The Times. Mehreen, it's been been a lively few weeks in the world of banking. Just take us back to where all of this began. Take us back to the beginning of March. A Californian bank that most people in Britain won't have heard of before collapsed. What happened? Yes, this was Silicon Valley Bank, which actually I imagine most people in the United States would not have heard of. And unless you were part of a a relatively small coterie of tech companies or venture capitalists based out in California, you probably also wouldn't have heard of Silicon Valley Bank. It was the 16th largest bank in the United States. And over the course of around 48 hours, uh, suffered uh, what can only be described as a bank run. the two scariest words that you hear if you work in a financial institution. We don't know if Silicon Valley Bank is really under duress, but we don't want to wait around to find out. Venture capitalists reportedly advising their portfolio companies to pull their money from the bank. If you're going to panic, it's best to panic early. A major development in the banking world, the FDIC just reported that California regulators shut down Silicon Valley Bank. California regulators have shut this lender down. This is the biggest failure since 2008. Greatest bank failure. The biggest American bank to fail. Since the financial crisis of 2008. Since the 2008 financial crisis. Its depositors, who are mainly companies working in the tech sector, were pulling out records amounts of their deposits from the bank to the point that it lost almost a quarter of its entire deposit base just over a day. Wow. And what what triggered that? Just a day earlier, the sort of senior officials or executives at the bank had to give a sort of regular earnings statement where they informed their investors and their shareholders and uh, financial journalists that they were having trouble doing risk management on some of the assets which they had put money in. So lots of the deposits that the bank was getting from these customers, they have to do something with this money. They put a lot of it in government bonds, which are classically uh, probably one of the most safest form of investment yeah. you can do. And have been a very safe form of investment for anyone who's been, uh, you know, dabbling in financial markets for about the last 15 years when interest rates have been historically very low. The problem that Silicon Valley Bank had happened is that in the last 18 months or so, interest rates have gone gangbusters. We've seen the sharpest increase in global interest rates in 40 years because inflation uh, has come back with a vengeance. And the price of the bonds that Silicon Valley Bank invested in were collapsing and had collapsed. And that meant that it was very... um, it had a risk management problem in the in the assets on its balance sheet were becoming less worthy. It was having it was being forced to sell these assets to raise cash in order to maintain its deposit structure. And when it told uh, investors and shareholders that it was going to do a bit of rejigging of its balance sheet and, and eventually, you know, with a few billion here and a few billion there, they would be fine. The message that shareholders and investors got were was precisely the opposite. And it actually set off a panic among its customer base who used platforms like WhatsApp and other social media to tell one another that they were pulling their money out of Silicon Valley Bank. And they actually 
It's probably the first digital bank run that we've seen ever in modern times. It's nothing like people queuing up outside Northern Rock in 2007. Mm. People were using their apps, their mobile banking apps, to pull out hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars from Silicon Valley Bank to the point where it was effectively bankrupt within less than 48 hours. Wow. And you're right, we've never seen anything like that before. And it's all so much faster now. And so, you know, before you were at least limited by the number of people who could get into the bank. They would queue around the block. But now it can all happen online in a moment. The speed in which this happened, I think, is going to be looked back on by historians and also by future regulators about what the modern banking world looks like. And we're, we've already entered a completely different territory than anything we've seen before, like in the financial crisis, which is still very much in the living and working memory of most people. And I think that's one of the, the elements of Silicon Valley Bank, which will go down as being a sort of watershed moment in the way we think about how secure and stable banks really are. And this is a bank that, you know, as you've said, most people in Britain or America probably hadn't heard of until it went bankrupt. It's a regional bank. You'd think it would only affect a small number of people. And yet that had an effect on the market. Why did it seem to have more of an impact than than people would have imagined? The beauty and also the danger of Silicon Valley Bank is that, as the name suggests, that it is a bank which serves a very particular customer base and one particular sector, which is the US tech and startup sector. So it has a, a sort of small but relatively important, significant industry which it serves. And the problem with Silicon Valley Bank going bust is that, yes, its customers were not people that would have systemically had an impact on the entire financial sector of the US. But from a public point of view and from a political point of view, Silicon Valley, the companies in Silicon Valley, the technologies they make are far too important to be allowed to go bust. So a lot of these companies were saying that they would not be able to meet their payroll within the next couple of weeks if they weren't able to access those deposits. And that's why Silicon Valley's depositors effectively had all of those deposits guaranteed by the US government uh, over and above the 250000 dollar legal limit that the US has for deposit insurance. Uh, The government took the momentous decision to say, well, if anyone had a cent in Silicon Valley Bank, they are not going to lose it and the government will guarantee all of that money. I mean, that's huge. You can sort of see that they were very afraid of the ripple effect that would have gone out across the tech sector. People wouldn't have been paid. Companies that were otherwise good could have folded. But that's a huge gamble for the American government to take on. Silicon Valley Bank, despite its name and despite its um, you know, very niche clientele, also had a branch in Britain. Tell us about how the British government responded. The only other real international presence they had uh, was in London, where they had a few hundred staff and were also serving a very similar role in being a bank for the UK's tech startups. In the UK, what really happened was that the taxpayer and the government, the Treasury and the Bank of England were spared having to make a similar guarantee to secure all deposits because HSBC came in and decided to buy all of the assets of Silicon Valley Bank for the princely sum of one pound and sort of do a classic bank rescue, which we also saw during the financial crisis as a way to take on all of the assets and liabilities of the UK unit of Silicon Valley Bank and spare the rest of us, that is the taxpayer and the public purse, from having to meet the demands of its uh, its potential demise. So Silicon Valley Bank is gone, but that's not the end of the market turmoil. Tell us what was happening in the banking sector 
while they were watching Silicon Valley Bank collapse. Silicon Valley Bank set off, I think, what, uh, you know, we have to be quite careful in financial journalism how we write about these things, but some degree of financial panic about who could be next. What are the other financial institutions, big or small, who have made quite bad risk management decisions and who are now being caught out in the environment of higher interest rates? And there were a couple of other, you know, smallish lenders who also went bust alongside Silicon Valley Bank. One of them was Silvergate, which was almost like a parent company related to Silicon Valley Bank. And the other one was Signature, a New York-based lender, which was far more focused on the crypto sector, which has also been having huge amounts of turmoil over the last 18 months due to high interest rates. Cumulatively, those three banks made up the second, third and fourth largest bank failures in the US in modern history. So that tells you the scale of what is going on. These banks may not be household names, they may not be systemically important, as regulators call them, but they had suffered hugely from bad decisions and they were being caught out. And Silicon Valley did therefore have a contagion effect around other lenders. And the thing that was maybe slightly unexpected is that those tremors and that contagion moved to Europe relatively quickly. European markets have closed down more than 3%, spooked by a major sell-off of shares in the Swiss banking giant Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse. It is 167 years old and has over a trillion dollars of assets under management. But it seems likely in the next few hours it will cease to exist. Within days, investors and markets were also asking questions about Credit Suisse. It has very little to do with crypto. It has very little to do with lending to the tech sector. But it is a bank that has been in some degree of turmoil, has been engulfed in scandals. Some of its executives have had to leave in disgrace and was considered to be a bit of a weak link in the European banking system. And effectively, within a week of Silicon Valley Bank having been forced to go bust, Credit Suisse was also put into what we can call a shotgun marriage and was forced to be bought up by UBS. Its biggest rival was told in no uncertain terms by the finance minister of Switzerland that UBS had to be the company that was going to buy Credit Suisse and there was no alternative. And Mark's, I think, the biggest victim so far in Europe of this financial panic. Wow. Uh, and amazing that the government can do that to two separate banks, tell them exactly how it's going to pan out. We saw with Silicon Valley Bank, you know, the government stepped in and saved all the deposits that were held with it. So nobody was losing their money with with Credit Suisse. It hasn't worked out quite so well, has it, for people who were investors or, or who worked for Credit Suisse? Yes, we don't know at this moment what the extent of job losses are. So I think that's something to be determined. But the Swiss authorities decided to take a pretty historic decision, which is that they were going to force some bondholders in the bank to take losses before the shareholders of Credit Suisse. Now, in the post-financial crisis world, regulators had to come up with a system about how they would allow a bank to collapse and who gets to take losses in what kind of order, something called a creditor hierarchy. And in this hierarchy, which is a little bit complicated, effectively a shareholder, so somebody who's got Credit Suisse stocks, will always be first in line to take the hit because stocks, by their very nature, are quite risky investments. And because they're risky, you get a higher return for them. Bonds are slightly less risky, which means they give you less money in return, but they're slightly safer assets. The Swiss decided to do something relatively historic, which is to protect around 3 billion Swiss francs worth of, of shareholders and instead force bondholders to 
take those losses. And that's now opened up huge legal cases against the Swiss authorities. It's also raised questions about why the Swiss authorities took this decision. Uh, and one of the readings that's come out from various stories is that because of the influence that Gulf and Saudi shareholders had on the shareholdings of Credit Suisse, that they were not willing to take these losses. And therefore, the Swiss had to force it on bondholders instead because it was worried about the ramifications for some very lucrative and wealthy investors in the Middle East who didn't want to be holding the can for Credit Suisse. It's also raised questions about whether any of those rules that we devised after the financial crisis will ever be used. Are we ever going to be in a position where it's the investors of a bank that take the losses and the taxpayers don't have to be carrying the can for them? I think in that sense, maybe we haven't really learned any of the lessons of the financial crisis and we're still bailing them out rather than allowing them to go bust and basically punishing these institutions for being bad at their jobs. That's a question, I think, going forward, which we can say that maybe you know we're still in a place where we are encouraging something called moral hazard or the idea Ooh. that those who are in financial markets can take as big a risks as they want because ultimately, if those risks fail, they'll always be the public purse to save them in the end. Coming up, 15 years on, are we still repeating some of the same mistakes from 2008? And is it now time for a banking rethink? That's after a quick message from a colleague. I'm David Charter. I'm the US editor of The Times and Sunday Times, based in Washington, DC. It's been a crazy news agenda in America. In fact, we thought we'd catch a break after Trump, but it's been nonstop under Biden. And now the 2024 election process is really starting. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Maureen, in the last couple of weeks, you know, it's been a tumultuous fortnight. During the course of that period, we saw billions being wiped off various banks and the markets plummeting. They've, they've rallied since then. But where do things stand now? Are people still worried about the banking sector? 
I don't think that a lot of the big questions about banks have been resolved around, you know, a week to 10 days after the Credit Suisse move. We know that central banks in particular, whose job it is to manage financial stability, but also to control inflation, are now being looked at to try and be perhaps a bit more cognizant of the impact their interest rate rises has in different parts of the financial system. There's a saying that the recent interest rate rises is a sort of whatever it breaks era of central banking rather than the whatever it takes. And the breaking is happening. Silicon Valley Bank broke. Um, Credit Suisse to some extent broke. Now, traditionally, banks should be big beneficiaries and big winners of rising interest rates because it helps their profit margins. It allows them to lend at more expensive rates If you and I want to take out a loan, it's going to be far more expensive now than it was a year ago. And banks kind of pocket the difference in those interest rates. However, having said that, even though they are making a lot of money in one part of their business, other parts of their business, which is based around financial engineering and risk management, is really in trouble. And the pace of interest rate rises and the the pace of the volatility that we see in financial markets means that a lot of financial institutions are not able to handle this volatility. So the, the question now is that who is next, uh, in which part and pocket of the financial system could new stress emerge? I think for now, some of the emergency actions by the US Federal Reserve and the Swiss National Bank have worked. We are in a slightly calmer period, but there's still huge questions about what happens next, particularly because low in- high interest rates are not going away. If anything, they are still going up and they'll probably stay at a very high level and they will not be cut or, or reduced unless we have major recession, which is brought on by a banking crisis. Wow, it's a, a, a terrible spiral. Um, in the last few days after that has happened, and as you say, so much of it is is reliant on interest rates. So much of the banking sector is looking shaky because of higher interest rates. In the last week, we have had interest rates across the board again going up. You described it earlier as a whatever-it-breaks attitude. Um, what are you hearing about the thinking in the Fed and in the Bank of England at the moment about interest rate rises? I think it's fair to say that most central bankers have had a relatively carefree attitude when it comes to interest rate rises, as in they have been raising interest rates at the fastest pace since the 1980s. And for some like the Bank of England, the fastest pace since it became an independent central bank. And they're doing that because, ironically, they were facing a huge test of their credibility because nobody really believed that they thought inflation uh, was a serious problem, that they had let it get out of hand, and therefore they had to take this aggressive action to control inflation and win back some of the credentials that they had lost in the last year. Having said that, the problem with being so bold and radical and relatively carefree is that they were breaking things in the financial system. And that's what Silicon Valley's bank is a victim of and others will probably see too. So now we're hearing much more nuanced language from central bankers who are raising interest rates, but at a slightly smaller pace. So the Federal Reserve carried out a quarter of a percentage point increase in its base rate. The Bank of England did the same. That's the smallest rate rise we've had in the UK since May. Um, And it shows that the pace of this aggressive tightening is beginning to slow because central bankers have to manage two difficulties. One is to 
control inflation and to keep it low. And the other one is to manage financial stability. And the irony of interest rates is that they do one of those things, which is manage inflation, but they really hurt the other one, which is financial Mm. stability. So I think the pendulum has swung. We have hit that tipping point. And I think from now on in, you will see central banks either pause on interest rates entirely or carry out more measured interest rate rises with lots of reassuring language about the fact that they're very cognizant that their actions do have consequences for markets and ultimately for real people with money in real banks and real pension yeah. funds. And I mean, this the interest rate rises over the past few months, you know, they have been really dramatic for a lot of people who are used to interest rates being virtually zero. Is that partly why so many of these banks were exposed? Is it partly because there wasn't a working culture anymore that expected interest rate rises? There are very good questions about why a bank like Silicon Valley Bank was just so bad at risk management. So, you know, anyone who's paid any attention to the world in the last year or so would know that interest rates are going up and they're going up pretty fast. I think it's a good question to ask that a lot of people who would have been working in the financial sector, even if they're sort of in middle management, probably joined just after the financial crisis, where we never had to deal with inflation, where the idea of interest rate rises uh, being something that could hurt financial stability was just so far away a prospect that it probably did something to the risk management culture of a lot of these smaller banks or tech-focused banks that they didn't really understand what an environment of high interest rates looked like because they really have no historical working memory of any of this stuff. You really have to go back to the late 80s and the early 90s to think about what interest rates can do in terms of hurting an economy and hurting the balance sheet of a bank. And I think this environment is really catching those out who haven't been able to do prudent and I think sensible investments. And I've put lots of money in apparently safe assets, which really in an interest rate environment don't become safe at all. They become almost worthless. And I think a question going forward is that now we're in a world of high interest rates. What psychological impact will this have on people going forward? And those who have used to the financial crisis era of easy money and sub-zero interest rates, where you could buy companies with huge amounts of leverage and it would never really come back to bite you. Well, a lot of those things are now coming to bite. And I think that's why this crisis is not really over. We might just be at the beginning or in the middle of it, because I think there's still a few more parts of the system that are going to be caught out by what's going to happen over the next few months. And Maureen, we've talked quite a lot about the 2008 crisis. And it's, you know, it's hard not to when you're talking about a run on banks or you know, a banking crisis. But we did learn some lessons from the 2008 crash. A lot of regulations were introduced afterwards to try to ensure that nothing like that would ever happen again. But some of those regulations have been eased in the last few years. And and actually, I understand that some of the executives at Silicon Valley Bank were partly responsible for, for that easing. So for Silicon Valley Bank in particular, we know that the bank was involved in lobbying the then Trump administration in 2018 to say that if you're a smaller bank, so you have assets under a threshold of $250 billion, that you should not be subjected to the same types of rules that big banks have to undergo. I know community bankers are the most popular person in their community, and uh, they've built communities, and they've really been so badly hurt over the last number of years. So we're going to change that. We're going to change regulations. We're going to give the incentives back. And you're going to grow and thrive and prosper. And maybe even more importantly, you're going to... 
And therefore, Silicon Valley Bank was not subjected to big testing of larger institutions. But what happened since 2018 was that Silicon Valley Bank became the fastest growing bank in the United States in the then booming tech sector during the pandemic. Uh, companies that had so much money were getting money from private equities and investors. They didn't know what to do with it. So they were parking it all in deposits for Silicon Valley Bank. And, you know, it's it's one of these old sayings, but you never really want to be the fastest growing bank in your country. That usually means that something is going wrong. And so it was with Silicon Valley Bank. They grew too fast. They had too many deposits. They didn't know what to do with them. They pumped them into the wrong type of asset. They were not doing the hedging on those assets. And effectively, they became a victim of their own success to some degree. And I think now the whole idea of small banks being safer banks is being called into question. And the whole notion of too big to fail is also, I think, been completely undermined by the fact that the 16th biggest lender in the US went bust. And with it became the second largest banking failure in the United States. That shows you that the impact of a single bank getting into trouble will always have some degree of psychological impact on the whole financial system. And the question about regulation is now going to be maybe we should make everyone, all banks, big and small, we should look at who their depositors are, how diversified their deposit base is, whether or not they're serving one particular systemically important sector of the economy or have you know, customers all across the economy. And so it's going to require a massive rethink about that whole post-crisis, post-2008 system. Mm. In the UK, I don't think it's fair to say that anything that the government did has contributed to financial instability. In the UK, this is much more aspirational. So we've been just at the beginning of what was looking like a change in regulatory regime. Something called the Edinburgh reforms have been agreed and approved by Parliament, but they've yet really to come into force. What are they? I'm in Edinburgh, which is one of the great financial services capitals in the UK. Well, uh, Edinburgh, because that was the city where Jeremy Hunt made his big sort of vision speech about what he wanted the city of London to look like. And so today I've announced a big package of reforms to encourage more investment in the UK. Uh, we call them the Edinburgh Reforms, um, but also to help UK banks invest in infrastructure and other projects that will make the British economy more successful. Um, we've had a very, very successful day meeting with banks, financial services, organisations. There's a lot of excitement. But I think what's going to happen now is that some of these nascent attempts to deregulate uh, the City of London will probably never happen. And if we do have a change of government, and it is the Labour government in 2024, I also think they're going to be less willing to do a lot of this lighter touch regulation because they will see that this is not the way to protect taxpayers' money. We thought 2008, you know, what, what came after it, that there was a, ma- a moment of reset in the banking world. It sounds like we're about to have another one now. Are are we entering a new phase for banking? I think this crisis has exposed that banks uh, inherently by their very nature are very unstable entities. They are not like normal companies. They're not like normal businesses. A bank relies on its main source of funding uh, through deposits. And because of the way deposits are parked in financial institutions, they can be taken away away very quickly. And as we already mentioned, they can be taken away so quickly on a swipe of your mobile phone in a few seconds that it can actually lead to an entire bank going bust within hours. But I think the question now is to what degree do we tell investors in banks and shareholders in banks that we will also protect them if a bank goes under? 
how much are we willing to tell parts of the financial system that will always be there for them, even if they've made bad decisions and risky decisions? Right now, we're hearing lots of reassurance from the Bank of England, from the Treasury, that the UK banking system is very well capitalised. We're hearing the same in Europe, that actually European banks are nothing like American banks. They're far safer, they're far better capitalised and far better regulated. This, ironically, was exactly what US and UK lawmakers were saying when Lehman Brothers went collapsed. They thought this was a very specific US uh, form of you know risky cowboy capitalism that had gone bad very quickly and it was not going to touch European or UK shores. We saw uh, ultimately that that was completely false. So we might be looking back at some of these statements of reassurances and seeing that actually they weren't, we're not as solid as we think we are. And the big variable that is different is that this interest rate environment means that we don't really know who's in trouble until they really put their hand up or, you know, one of the the metaphors in this world is that, you know, you don't really know who's swimming naked until all the water is drained out of the pool. And I think there's probably going to be a few more financial institutions that are going to be caught um, wearing no pants, as it were. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, economics editor for The Times, Mehreen Khan. If you're a subscriber, you can check out Mehreen's weekly economics column out today on the banking worries that aren't going away. This episode was produced by Edward Drummond, Taryn Siegel, Oliver Adamson, and Emma Taggart. The executive producer is Kate Ford and sound design was by David Crackles. If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find us. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.